and thank you. Please have a seat. <coughs> and I do genuinely appreciate the prayer that Matt's prayed in so much as we come today to what is universally believed by Bible scholars to be probably the most difficult parable that Jesus actually ever taught. And so uh, we face the challenge of trying to make sense of, uh, of what Jesus said here in Luke chapter 16 and, and face some really significant barriers to that in so much as we were not there when Jesus actually taught it, so we're not part of the broader context, we have to try and figure that out from the Scriptures. We're not Eastern people by and large, most of us have grown up in the West and so we have a, a, a framework, a way of thinking which uh, reads the passages of the Scripture through Western eyes and not Eastern eyes and so perhaps we miss out on some of the nuances of the story. And then, of course, we have the burden of 2,000 years of interpretive history on our shoulders which tends to frame the way we think about the Scripture and as we come to this passage, those of you who've perhaps tried to make sense of it over the years uh, will, will be aware of different ways it's been understood and so our task this morning is quite challenging, but uh, we're up for the challenge, true? I'm not thoroughly convinced by that response, <laughs> but I will hope by the end of our message today, there might be, there might just be some aha moments, as there certainly was for me as I sat with this passage through the week. However, I'm mindful, as always, we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit's enlightening to bring light and truth to His Word, so let's pray before we open the Scriptures. Luke chapter 16, God, we do invite You to speak to us now. We thank You for Your Word that has been sustained, maintained and transmitted to us through the centuries. We are a long way from the original recipients and yet, Father, You speak. You are a living God and so uh, there will be understanding. We expect that You will reveal to us Your goodness your purpose and your plan through this word as you do from all of your word for it is all inspired by you and we trust you this morning to do that and so commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a Bible, Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to go and uh, Cohen's going to pop the words up on the screen and I'm, I am in some ways just a little bit reticent about doing that because I guess the risk is it makes for lazy Bible readers in so much as... You don't need to open your Bible, but I want to encourage you to open your Bible today because this passage is very much located in a context. It's not just Luke chapter 16 verses 1 to 8 or 1 to 9 that we're going to look at and in fact trying to make sense of this passage, if you only look at those verses, is going to be a challenge. There's a broader context and dare I say it to those of you who love your technology um, and this is not a criticism, please don't hear this, it's a bit like... Uh, if you're using the, the map in your car, you know how you can kind of see this much of where you're going. It doesn't show you that over here there's a lake that might be interesting to go and look at or over here there's a cliff that you don't want to drive over. It shows you this much. One of the temptations, I guess, no, perhaps that's the wrong word, one of the challenges of using a device, convenient that it is, and I do it myself all the time, is that you don't see what's outside. So... We'll put this in context in a moment, but let's read the passage first. It's Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 8, and it says this, Jesus told His disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. 
So we called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I'll do when I, uh, sorry, I, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are shrewder in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. And then verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. There's a, there's a really lovely story and I hope it's true. A story written about the time that Henry Ford, you know who Henry Ford was? American industrialist. Uh, systematised the making of cars. Henry Ford visited Dublin in Ireland to trace his family history and a person who was raising funds for a retirement home was bold enough to ask Ford for a £1,000 donation to contribute to the construction of the home. And Ford, being a philanthropist, readily agreed and gave £1,000, which in those days was a significant sum of money. But in the paper the next day, an article appeared saying that the great Henry Ford had made a £50,000 donation to the retirement home. The shrewd fundraiser went to Ford and said, now, Ford, uh, Henry, you, you, look, you can either give me another £49,000 or I can say there was a mistake and we'll have a correction printed in the paper tomorrow to say that you only gave £1,000. What would you like me to do? And Henry Ford apparently thought about it for a moment and then agreed to give a further £49,000 on one condition. And the one condition was that the scripture verse, Matthew 25, verse 35, be placed above the entrance door to the home. If you're not familiar with that verse, it says this, I was a stranger and you took me in. Let's <laughs> think about that for a moment. I was a stranger and you took me in. This, uh, this story that I've just read from Luke chapter 16, the story of the shrewd manager, it's a simple story and it's very easy to conceive of something like that happening uh, in business in the Middle East, in fact in any context, uh, in fact in just about any context because through the ages there have always been owners of property and business, there have always been managers who have been a bit shifty and uh, this guy in the story, let's call him for what he was, he was a crook. The manager was a crook. As I said a few moments ago, before we actually drill into um, the details of this passage, it's actually worth just noting where this parable fits into the broader narrative of Luke and if you do have the old-fashioned paper version, It'll come as no surprise to you, and this will come as no surprise to anyone, actually. Chapter 16 is preceded by chapter 
15, which if you have a look back, you'll find uh, has a series of stories, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and very significantly, the parable of the lost son. And there's actually some significant overlaps between chapter 15 and, and the parable of the lost son in particular, and chapter 16, the parable of the shrewd manager. You'll notice if you have a look at both of those stories, if you're familiar with both of those stories, that both of those stories have a noble master, the father and the owner, who are in both, in both narratives um, men of upstanding in the community. There's no bad in them, so to, so to speak, in the story. And both of them demonstrate remarkable grace. There's some significant overlap in so much as both stories, the parable of the prodigal and the parable of the shrewd manager, have a son, a manager who wastes resources or uses them in an ignoble manner or a, a, a less than honest manner. Both the son and the manager run into a moment of truth. They, they find themselves, they hit the wall, so to speak, in, in life. Both the son and the manager throw themselves at the mercy of the master. The son who comes back and says, Father, I've got nothing, I'm at, I'm at your mercy. Likewise, the shrewd manager um, who throws himself at the mercy of the master in some respects. And both parables deal with the issues of broken trust and the promises, uh, sorry, the problems that result from that. The passage here in chapter 16 starts by Jesus talking about a rich man who is fabulously rich. It's clear that this guy is a fabulously rich person who has received reliable reports about the mismanagement of his manager. We're not told where those reports have come from. Chances are they've come from people in the community who clearly respect this man because if he was a disrespectful character, no one would have come and told him about the fact he was being ripped off by his manager, right? That kind of would make sense. There's no suggestion of any impropriety in this story on the part of the owner and that's important as we think about that for later on. As a result of becoming aware of the dishonesty of his manager, the master summons the manager and said to him, give me an account of what's been going on and then in an action that would have stunned the people who were listening, fired him on the spot. And I say stunned the people who were listening because basically uh, the, the owner has said, give me the books, you can't be my manager anymore, clear your desk and get out of here, that's it. There was no negotiation and in an Eastern context, that's unbelievable. Even in our context nowadays, that's unbelievable. Can you imagine the hoops, uh, typically, let's talk about our context, the hoops that you need to go through if you're an employer to dismiss a staff member, particularly in a government kind of organisation. I look around at some people who are working in those contexts and they tell me, you know, it can be a year warnings and letters and mediation and this and that and the other thing till the end point where the owner of the business pretty well says give up i'm just going to close down it's all too hard in the eastern context stop talking about it now you guys i can see i can see this conversation that's not what you need to focus on okay in the eastern context same kind of deal you could expect 
normally that this guy, the manager who's just been sacked on the spot, would have said, whoa, whoa, wait on a second, my dear master, I've worked for you all these years and my father worked for your father before me and his father before me with his father. We've had this long relationship. You could have expected in the Eastern context, the manager would have gone and said to his friends, could you make representation, please, to this guy I've just been... Surely we can fix this problem. There would have been some sort of... um, negotiation going on but the shrewd manager the guy that's just been sacked pursues none of these options at all and then rather interestingly when he's confronted by his crime what does he say nothing and in the eastern context and in the western context silence means what consent You can't be my manager anymore, you've been um, fiddling the books, guilty as charged. So we've got two characters, we've got the owner who is noble and we've got the manager who we can say with absolute confidence is a crook. He's a shonky manager and he's just been sacked. And then of course from verse 3, Jesus takes us into the mind of the manager who at this point having just been fired, is ruminating on his future. Now, take notice at the moment, how many people in the story know that he's been sacked? Only two. The owner who sacked him and the manager. And so, uh, he's figuring out, um, I've, I've got to find a plan. What shall I do? We're taken into his mind Uh, What shall I do? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. The guy's a crook, but you've got to appreciate there's some redeeming qualities in his character, at the very least. He knows that he's not strong enough to dig and he doesn't want to belittle himself to the point of begging. In fact, he probably doesn't qualify according to the kind of unwritten law of Israel to beg. He's he's not uh, suffering any particular disease or disability. And so he realises that if he doesn't do something pretty smartly, he's going to be in all sorts of trouble. But he still holds the books. He's still actually got the account books. And even though everything that he does from this point onwards will be illegal, he has one chance to change his future. Otherwise, everyone will soon learn that he's been sacked for corruption. And that would be a problem because no one would open their homes to him. He will never get another job as a manager. There won't be an opportunity to work for somebody else if this news gets out. And so he says, what to do? And what we see unfolding in the next few verses is very, very cunning, if illegal. And I sat with it throughout this week and I thought to myself, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this guy, this is brilliant. it really is so clever what he does and I'm not uh, recommending it, <laughs> saying here you go, uh, follow this plan but it really is really, really smart. Have a look at what happens. He enlisted the people who were in debt to the master in such a way so that publicly they could say, we thought to the master, we thought this was your plan. The managers actually called them in, sat them down and, uh, and has put a plan to them, we'll talk about it in a second. Uh, they could, they could, they've got plausible deniability and so 
that's important because in the future they want to be able to continue to do business uh, with um, the master, with the owner of the property. Privately though, they're actually getting a really good deal. And so privately they can say, this is fantastic. Publicly they can say, well, you know, it wasn't actually our plan. It's a very, very clever way that this shrewd manager has kind of positioned uh, the situation to help himself and, and, and create an environment that, that no one really wants to rock the boat on, so to speak. His actions too, in what he does, as we'll see here, actually backs the master, the, the owner, into a corner as well, so much so uh, that the master... Uh, the only thing the master could do to save face and remember, again, in an Eastern context where shame and you know, saving face is the most important thing, uh, the, the choices the master have are very, very limited. The only way he could save face was by accepting what had happened, absorb the losses, enjoy the good favour that had been created in the community because you can bet your bottom dollar when the uh, shrewd manager wrote down the debts of those people, they would have gone home and said... Guess what happened? Party in the village tonight. Massive debts have been forgiven and the owner wouldn't want to be the one to pour cold water on that, would he? In the same way that Henry Ford stumped up £49,000 rather than have £1,000 printed in the paper and everyone thought he was a miser. And so it's a, an amazingly clever plan. And so, as we see here in the text, verse 5, he called in, the manager called in each of the master's debtors but he did it in a really careful way too. He called them in one at a time. One person at a time. Why did he do that? It's easier to get your plans in place. It's a strategy, and I don't use this language um, intentionally. Master manipulators will always use this strategy, you know. It's the idea of just getting everyone on board before you put it out publicly. If you did it publicly, there'd be someone who'd say, wait on a second. And then, of course, groupthink takes over, but he did it one at a time. Very, very clever. Brought them together, came to the first one, asked the question, how much do you owe? Which is, it's a weird question because there's absolutely no, no um, question whatsoever about the fact that both the manager and the, and the debtor would have known exactly how much was owed. Sure, we lived, you know, 2,000 years ago in a time where there weren't so many written records kept, uh, but they would have known what was owed and the first guy owed an astonishing debt. Scripture tells us the first guy in the parable owed 3,000 litres of olive oil. 3,000 litres of olive oil. I can remember um, years, quite a few years ago when we first came back from service overseas, uh, walking into a supermarket and it was a distressing experience. And I say that with all honesty because our experience had been going to a supermarket where mostly the shelves were empty. Uh, occasionally there were stuff on the shelves, you know, you get, oh, let's get it while we get it kind of stuff. You come back here, walked into Woolworths, they've got a whole aisle of olive oil or other oils, you know, sunflower oil and fish oil and all this kind of stuff. And I'm very tempted to talk about where all these oils come from. My favourite line is, you know, where does baby oil come from? But, <laughs> that takes a while sometimes, you guys need to wake up. 
3,000 litres of olive oil in, in the days of Jesus was the equivalent of around about one and a half year salary for your average wage earner. So just think, you know, average wage earner, about one and a half years of, uh, of salary there. Um, sorry, that's not actually wrong. It's about three years, I, I'd halve that. So it's a significant, a significant debt and the uh, manager says, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400, a similar process followed with the guy who owed 1,000 bushels of wheat, this time 20% came off the top of the bill and on each occasion you'll notice in the story, and it's one of these beautiful little details, uh, the manager said to the person who had the debt, you write it in here, again it's plausible deniability, it's not the manager's handwriting, there's an interesting theory actually and I'll share it with you, I don't know um, whether it is germane to the story or not. There's a theory which actually says um, when it comes to knocking the discounts off, all the manager was doing was taking off his commission. There are some Bible interpreters who actually say um, the debt the manager cut was actually a debt that had, no sorry not the debt, the percentage that came off the debt would have been what he would have made in commission. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not um, and it's not actually that important. The point is, when the master eventually gets hold of the books, he will look at that and he will know that some of his closest business associates, the people he's been doing business with, are all party to this clever plot which makes it even harder for him to object to what's going on. How can I say anything without offending people, without breaking relationship? the most significant thing in an Eastern context. And if uh, we, even if we do remember that this is just a parable, in the case of something like this happening in real life, in an Eastern context and probably in a corrupt Western context too, according to the rules of trading, it's highly likely that the discounts, the 1,500 litres of olive oil and 200 bushels of wheat ultimately may have been split between the manager and the person whose debt had been forgiven. So, we're going to knock 1,500 off, but, and you and I can kind of share that, that may have been the message. The master will get his 1,500, but let's do this little deal on the side. So, there's all this stuff going on in the background of the story. The debtors will be able to legitimately say, publicly at least, that they thought the Deals were authorised by the master because the manager had called them in and he was a representative of the master. Uh, the, privately, they knew they'd accepted a deal that put something back in their pocket and probably served the shrewd manager as well. And then at the end of the story, the master's faced with this conundrum. Does he pursue legal action against the manager? Does he spoil the party that broke out in the village as a result of his generosity, does he pay the price? Does he remain quiet? Does he continue to enjoy his reputation as a generous man or does he risk that? And in verse 8, the parable concludes with the master commending the dishonest manager and we need to read this carefully, not for his dishonesty but because he acted in a shrewd manner. Now, if, if that's all we had to deal with, um, we could frame this as a, as a magnificent insight into the corrupt business practices of Jesus' time. Uh, we could talk about how 
uh, shame and honour and relationships were such a dynamic at the time of Jesus and that would be a lovely place to go to. It would be all the easier if Jesus made the kind of applications from this passage that we think he ought to make too. For instance, being honest is good, right? And being dishonest is bad. That'd be nice if Jesus did that, but unfortunately, uh, he didn't. He went on to say, I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Why did Jesus say that? And what does it actually mean? And why did Jesus go on to talk about stewardship as he does through the rest of this passage? And how does this story link with the story that's come before, the story of the prodigal? Luke's put these two things together. There really shouldn't be a chapter division here. And there have been all sorts of attempts to kind of explain what's going on and then make some applications from them. So let me just throw a few at you, some of them which will be interesting but not really satisfactory in terms of answering those questions and then perhaps one idea that I think goes some way to help understand what's going on. Let's have a look at some of the easy ones. You might have noticed that when the deception of the manager is brought to the master's attention, the manager in that moment had the opportunity to actually say something. He could have said, you're right, I've been fiddling the books Guilty as charged. What do I need to do to make compensation? How do I actually fix this problem? But he doesn't do that. And so there are some who would say, um, here's, here's the perfect example of how lies beget lies, how sin begets sin. And you know how that works, don't you? You know, someone tells a lie about one little thing and then has to tell another lie to cover that up, and has to tell another lie to cover that one up, and that's sort of what happens in this story. It just keeps rolling and rolling, and that's been happening throughout human history. Sin is like that. A good application, but it doesn't really capture the heart of what Jesus was saying in this passage, so let's not make that the main focus. I did make the comment too that when the manager was confronted, what was his response? He said nothing. And there are, there are some commentators, and I think it's reasonable to say this, you know, when, when we are confronted by our rebellion, when that's put in front of us, that's really the only response we should have. But you remember what happened when God went to Adam, said, hey, Adam, what's going on here after Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit? And Adam gave all the excuses in the world to try to justify himself. And so perhaps... Uh, we have an example here of what the right response is when we're confronted with our own fallenness. There's nothing we can say really to justify ourselves, is there? Interesting application, but probably again, uh, that's as much as we could say about it. We could make the point that rather than being condemned for his dishonesty, the manager in this passage is commended for taking resolute action in a crisis. Now, one of the commentators I read through this week made this the major application. This parable is about taking action. It's about framing a response. And that's actually not a bad application either in the sense that uh, the coming of Jesus into the world demands a response, doesn't it? You cannot, you cannot look at Jesus and just say interesting man he's either messiah or he's a madman we have to respond 
in some kind of way. His claims to be Messiah and Saviour are either true and demand our response of obedience and submission or they're false and they demand our ridicule. There can't be any in between. This is a good application but again I think it falls short of what Jesus was teaching in this parable. There are some people who've looked at this parable and said this is actually a parable about leaving, you know, preparing for eternity. Quite a few years ago now I was invited to speak at a school speech night. Some of you might have memories of school speech nights. Mine are not overly popular, uh, sorry, not popular is not the word, pleasant, let's say. They are usually held at the end of the year and they are the kind of refined form of torture that I would kind of line up somewhere like being locked in a small room with someone playing the bagpipes. It's just terrible. You gather and there's people who just want to talk, you know, the the school board chairman rattles on about the education system and then the principal has his talk and then there's music and that and sometimes music's terrific. It just goes on and on and on and on. And I was asked to speak as the guest speaker, you know, bring the message to, to this, this gathering. And the night was dragging on and on and on and I'm thinking, my goodness, this is actually worse than being the guest speaker at a conference after the conference attendees have eaten a three-course lunch. You know, everyone's just kind of going... Mm. You've got to do something remarkable in that space. And so I traded on the goodwill that I had with the principal, who was a good friend of mine, and I said to the students, some of whom were graduating that year and leaving and going somewhere else, I said, some of you, in fact, probably all of you, are looking at that exit sign right now. And one of the truisms of life is that we go through exit signs and every exit is an entry into something. Some of you are going to exit school tonight and enter into a whole new phase of life. You're looking at that exit sign and you are just wanting to walk under that right now, aren't you? This is after an hour and a half of speech night and I could see, uh, you know, nods of affirmation and the principal behind me probably going, well, you get off the stage. (laughs) It's actually a really good... Look, I thought it was a fantastic message, actually. (laughs) It really was. Memorable for all of the right reasons and some of the wrong reasons. Um, And sometimes you've got to pump your own tyres up, so there you go. (laughs) And it's true to say, if we look at this passage, in verse 9, Jesus did talk about entry into eternal dwellings. And so there is something in this parable about preparing to leave the exits and the entrances of life. But again, I think it's kind of just nibbling around the edge of what Jesus was teaching. Here's here's an idea, let's just float this one. To get a handle on this parable, we need to read it in its broad context. And across this whole passage of Scripture, verse, uh, sorry, through um, chapter 15, through chapter 16 particularly, Uh, we find themes like this, themes of stewardship of resources, the application of wisdom, trust and faithfulness, the importance of relationships, the experience of grace and the reality of eternity. One of the challenges that we face as Westerners is this, we read a passage of scripture, we drill down into it and we do it every Sunday, do the work of exegesis, we call it, taking the Scriptures, unpacking it, understanding it in its original context and applying it, but we do it kind of like through a microscope. We look at this much and today we need to look at this much. You're not going to be here for hours, so don't worry. 
and don't under any circumstances look at that exit sign. <laughs> but to make a reasonable application, we need to look at the broad picture here and understand uh, this problematic statement of Jesus where he said, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That only makes sense if you read it in the broader context. So what did Jesus want to underline in this parable? Here's a few thoughts kind of all joined together and you can go and do some more work on this too. Although um, Jesus um, did not commend dishonesty, Jesus lamented the fact that all too often people of the world have a better idea of how to use resources to achieve an end than the people of the light do for the purposes of the kingdom. I'll say that again another way. Jesus was lamenting in, in the broad context of this parish, uh, parable that people outside the kingdom, they know how to achieve a goal using the resources that they have more effectively than people of the light. So be smart, Jesus was saying. Be shrewd, be careful. Money and possessions are, and wealth are not the be-all and end-all of life and that's uh, mentioned here in this passage but they are important and they need to be applied in a way uh, that fosters relationships and grows the kingdom and addresses purposes beyond the immediate that we see. In the parable of the prodigal and I'm trying not to steal too much data here from you Matt because you're going to deal with this one in a few weeks. Um, the prodigal and the older brother, uh, sorry, yes, the prodigal son and the older brother both make the same mistake. They burn the relationship with the father. The prodigal says, hey, dad, I wish you were dead, give me the inheritance. The older brother says, how could you treat me like this? They actually prioritise their wealth over the relationship with their dad. That's a significant faux pas. That's a really big problem that we see in that parable. In both cases, um, they believed that money was to be used, in the younger son's case, have a good life, it'll be fantastic, party on. The older one, he was building up his share portfolio. Neither of them were using wealth in a smart way. Both of them burnt the relationship with their father. Both of them met unmerited grace. And here again is, is the broad picture. We see this idea of grace, the grace of God flowing through these stories. When the dishonest manager hit the wall, when his dishonesty was uncovered, he was cunning enough to know that relationships were the key to his longevity in the community and he took an enormous punt on the grace of, of the owner. He was prepared to bet that if he went down this line, he would be able to sleep at night in his home and the owner would not send three big men around to belt him up. That he would actually experience grace. And so you see this interplay of, uh, of grace in this story. And the master, as we see, actually commended him not for his dishonesty but for his clever thinking. And Jesus wants believers to demonstrate the same kind of insight, if not employing the same strategy. So don't go from this message and say, we can behave in a kind of dishonest manner and God will commend it. That's not the message. Here is some of the message the strategy. Building relationships is a better kingdom strategy than building wealth but the prudent use of wealth remains important. 
the master in the story was a wealthy man and he was not condemned for that. The thrust of verse 9 where Jesus says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, that's not kind of like, I can remember back at school, you know, we, we occasionally had pocket money. I, I was as tight as, as tight could be. But there were kids that would come to school with, with money and, you know, if I buy you something from the, I was going to say the gift shop, that's not what you had, tuck shop, the canteen, will you be my friend? It's not about bribing people to be in relationship with you, it's to use money for the purposes of the kingdom, to invest into the lives of other people so that the kingdom might grow and consider how we use our money and wealth to do that. There's the crux of the message that we see coming, uh, following on after this parable. Be wise, be smart, be clever about how you use your money. And I want to say there are people in our congregation who do this so well. As I was looking at the board out there this morning again just to see how we're doing in terms of um, the projects that we've been looking at, I know that there are people in our congregation, many people here, who have caught that vision and say, yes, I will use those resources that God has entrusted into my care to bless others. And that's, that's a kingdom value that's being demonstrated. Some years ago, I was talking to a group of students I was working with and we were debating the question, can you be rich and be a Christian? These guys were from an animistic kind of, um, how would you say, agrarian context. And they said, no, you can't. And I said, let's go for a walk to the library. And so we went to the library and I said, whose name is on the library? The library was actually named after a guy by the name of Leonard Buck. That name may be known to some of you. In fact, Leonard Buck's name is also known here in Bandiana, the, uh, the rec centre, the Everyman's Head Office is the Leonard Buck Centre. Leonard Buck was the Christian businessman. And Leonard Buck went about the business of making sure his business was a, a, a good business, ethical business, but a business that made money. And Leonard Buck actually then channeled money into all sorts of projects, kingdom projects. He was like... Uh, 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 the underwriter for so many different projects and he made sure that his business actually was able to support uh, not only those who were being employed but the profits went towards the kingdom and so we see that being lived out in reality. We had some other friends and I'll tell you this story as a final story this morning who lived in a little place called Annuello. I don't know if I've told you this story or not. Who knows where Annuello is? That's what I thought. Good on you Arthur. Uh, it's, uh, it's way out in the back of nowhere, south of Robinvale, uh, down towards Whoop. Anyhow, um, it's a family that farmed out there. We got to know through the little church that we were part of in uh, Robinvale. A family that had, and I can't remember, was it four boys and one girl or something? Five boys, one girl. And I have a feeling, Diana, that, that Naomi was born in the car on the way to the hospital. Is that something like that? Anyway, it doesn't matter. I do remember her father saying either she was born on the way or he dropped his wife off at the hospital and then he went to the sheep sale. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I remember. I remember him saying, it was a really good sale too. Um, this, uh, this family uh, lived by kingdom values. They had a farm, they farmed it, they supported the church, they supported me. They had a number of old cars and utes, mostly Holdens, HK, HG, that kind of vintage. And the most memorable thing about, well, two memorable things was actually one was only one of them was registered. And so they would move the number plate to whichever one happened to be working <laughs> at the time. 
One of them actually was in pretty good shape until the day they thought they'd use it to jumpstart the header and they kind of unfortunately left the header in gear so when it started it drove up and over the bonnet of... <laughs> that was the end of that one, the number plate came off that and went on another one. Another one. They had a house, one of those soldier settlement kind of houses they just added another room to every time a child was born and so you kind of walk through three bedrooms to get to one. There was a lovely, and I was telling someone this week, a lovely, lovely apricot tree that, that beautiful apricots growing right in the front door. Well, actually, the only the back door. Never used the front door. No one does in the country. Um, and it just kept growing. And you literally had to climb through the apricot tree to get into the house. It was an incre- they were an incredible family. And you walk around and you think, my goodness, what is going on here? And, and Jan said to me one day as we were walking around out the back of the house, she said, we're not, we're not building castles on earth, we're building mansions in heaven. Because the resources that they had were just being distributed, they were being used to bless others, to support the work of God in the church, in mission, ministry, all sorts of stuff. And that's the crux of the message, isn't it, here? The story of the shrewd manager is not just about one thing, it's about all of these things that come together. That's the invitation and the challenge of the parable, to choose carefully how you use your resources, to experience the grace of God, to be smart about how we do that. Let's pray and we'll invite our team to sing again. Father, we give you thanks again, as always at this point, for your word. We thank you too for your Holy Spirit who speaks through it and so this morning for every person here who has heard these words, every person who's watching or listening online, we just so dependent upon your Spirit to bringing light and truth. For me, Lord, I just, uh, I, I just do the best that I can but know that it's absolutely dependent upon you and so entrust into your care the message that has been preached today. Take it, use it, multiply it, make it effective, grow it. May your kingdom expand, may your church um, experience the blessings of God. May your people be encouraged, we pray, as we continue to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.